Hello and welcome to episode four of that 60s recording podcast. I am your host, Joe Montague. Um, today we are talking to a producer from Sheffield, uh, UK um, called Colin Elliott. Um, he's also a bass player and many other things as you're here. Um, I worked with Colin about four years ago um, in a band uh, that I used to be in called Dancing Years. Um, we enjoyed Colin's production on um, some Richard Hawley uh, tracks or albums and um, we contacted him about working with us and we made an EP with him. Um, and I loved Colin's studio, Yellow Arch. I love the way he works. I love his attitude towards um, recording. Um, and for me, it was an absolute no-brainer to get him on to speak to uh, to speak to me, so that you can hear about it. Um, I think you'll really, really enjoy this conversation. Um, as you'll hear me say, I think he's got uh, a very similar um, look, outlook on um, recording music that Ken Scott does, um, and uh, they they do in fact say some very, very, very similar things. Um, which I, I find really interesting um, and Colin's recording now you know bands in the current era but with the same mentality um, as somebody like Ken Scott which I think is um, is a bit of a rarity um, at the moment uh, anyway um, we'll get straight to it I'm not going to do much more of an introduction because I give uh, I talk through it quite a lot with Colin um, at the beginning of this um, before we start again, I just want to say thank you to everybody that's getting in touch um, with positive uh, comments about the podcast. Um, as I keep saying, I, I, I'm just very grateful that you're all listening um, and I would feel um, remiss not saying it at the beginning of each podcast when there are people who are taking the time um, to get in touch with me um, and say lovely things. I just want to say thank you to you all. Um, so anyway... Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation um, with Colin Elliott. So uh, today we're uh, honoured to be joined by um, Colin Elliott, who is a uh, a producer, a bass player, and an arranger. I'm I'm a bit conscious of the order that I'm saying them in. Is that what would you? Which order would you put those in? Uh, well, I'd probably say a musician first, actually. Oh, oh um, there you go. <laughs> a musician <laughs> who 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 produces and engineers and plays and arranges but yeah I don't really know never really had to answer that one before <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna list some of the artists you've worked with because it's um it's a pretty ridiculous list and um, so obviously Richard Hawley you've played with since uh, since the beginning um and then the the rest of this list you've either worked with as a producer a musician or an arranger or as in a lot of cases all three of them so uh slow club um, Tom Hickox, Dwayne Eddy, Jarvis Cocker, The Wedding Present, Carly Minogue, Paul Weller, Tony Christie. Um, my band Dancing Years you worked with, although I don't know if we're, uh, <laughs> we deserve to be on a list of all of that lot. Um, but that's that's quite uh, quite the list. So you also now run a studio called Yellow Arch. I'm, I'm sort of conscious that I've said you now run it, although some of those artists presumably you worked with at Yellow Arch. But I wonder if you could... Tell us a little bit about your music history leading up to um, to Yellow Arch, and um, that's been going for what twenty five years now. Is that right? Uh, yeah, twenty twenty three years now since we opened in ninety seven. Um, and it was a it was old, an old nuts and bolts factory. I read. 
Yeah, yeah, it was. Although when we, uh, that's what it was originally. They used to make the huge nuts and bolts that um, that hold ships together and bridges and things. So we've got we've got a doorstop in the reception, which is this. I don't know. I suppose it's about ten inches wide. Great big bolt. Or is it a nut? I never know which they are, actually. Um, anyway, the thing that goes round the other one, yeah, that's a huge thing that you can use for weightlifting. <laughs> but when we when we took it over, it was um, it was derelict and empty, although it had loads of old scrap metal and um, got a lot of kind of old photocopiers and people had just dumped a load of stuff there. Um, asbestos, lathes, no roof, loads of pigeons. Um, and I took it on with Andy Cook, who's been my business partner for years. He's a he's a drummer. Yes. Uh, he had a rehearsal room in town. I had a studio about two miles away from him. And we were working together a lot in different bands and just running from one room to the other all the time. And uh, we just thought, this is crazy. Why are we going from your place to mine and mine to yours? Let's put them together and have a rehearsal room and a studio together. And we just went driving around Sheffield looking for suitable places to to put it really and after about two months or so of looking we came across this place in uh neeps end or kellum in sheffield um it was all industrial then there was nothing nothing else around us at all there was a sandwich shop and a chip shop and a an old tire place opposite and uh yeah we went in and looked and, and there were there was room there to put three rehearsal rooms and a studio so we took it on thinking that we'd uh, have a nice place for us to work and everything would be paid for by other people. There was never really a great intention to be a commercial venture or a, a community hub or anything like that. And it, it just it just grew out of that as more and more people came to use it and we took on more rooms and, you know, after 20 years or, well, how long ago? Another five years ago. So kind of 15 years in, 17 years in, uh, we built a venue as well and started putting on gigs and, um, more community event and teaching people and um, yeah that kind of thing. I think that's the way to survive in um, in the industry at the moment. I, I would say is being a being a pillar of the community as opposed to just offering one service. You need to be everything to to lots of people, and and I know that I, takes lots of time. And you seem mm-hmm. to have have done that. Yeah, I think that's the way. Everyone's multitasking now, aren't they? And I think you have to these days because because of the way the music industry's gone recently and there's no the the big budgets aren't there anymore so to regard yourself as a as exclusively as a record producer i think there are very few people who are going to hit those dizzy heights these days you have to be a record producer and you have to probably be the songwriter and you might have to be the arranger and the engineer and um there's going to be a lot more in-house stuff and a, a lot a lot fewer budgets you know people five ten years ago an album that would have sold a hundred thousand physical copies now sells ten or fifteen thousand, you know, and if you're lucky and gets a few streams, but it, the, the revenue just isn't generated now to to justify the the big industry that that was around with all the big studios and all the extra sound engineers and and, and associated stuff that goes along with it. I mean, I'm amazed that so many studios are, are hanging on in there, really. Some of the big ones have, have gone by the wayside, haven't they? This is it. More more seem to disappear. Um, in every year, you see another one going. I don't know how what you know who will be affected by sort of COVID and what's happening right now. No, it's really hard to say. Um, 
yeah, it's uh, the, the whole coronavirus thing has, has messed everything up, including our, you know, our future. I don't know what's going to happen to Yellow Arch yet until um, we come out the other side of it. But um, up until this happened, I mean, the one the one thing that was encouraging in the in the world of music, I think, even though even though the money being generated is less, I think there's been a general feeling in not just in music but in in culture in general to go back to um oh what should we call it the the artisan i suppose you know people are buying craft beer instead of foster's lager people are going to their local bakery to get lo um you know bread rather than mother's pride and i think people are, are still looking for unique experiences in music and something a bit different um so i think that that tradition was set to continue. I hope it still will after, after the virus and everything. I I think I've seen the same, and that's why, um, why I was keen to have you come on the podcast and talk about this was, um, from having worked with you with a band I was in, Dancing Years, um, it seemed to me that your approach, um, you know, this is the I've called this the '60s recording podcast, and your your approach to production. Um, and all-round involvement in the making of a record um, smacked of, of um, 60s mentality, um, which is uh, why I thought speaking to you would be relevant. Um, I wonder if, uh, before we delve into to that kind of thing, if you could just tell us a bit about um, how what you were doing before you came to open Yellow Arch and, um, and start... Were you producing records before you had Yellow Arch? Not really, no. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was producing. It's always a hard step to say when you've suddenly become a producer, isn't it? But uh, I was always in bands. I was playing either percussion uh, or bass from uh, from the time I went to university. I was I was at un I I started off as a classical player. I played cello in my youth and in orchestras. I went to university and I didn't really like the classical scene. I didn't study music. Um, and I joined a band and I played bass in that band and those were in the days, this was 1982, 83, uh, those were the days where you could get hold of a Tascam 424 cassette four track and that was how we, how we recorded stuff there on the cheap. So you'd have a, a cassette, you could, you could only record four tracks at once, so you'd record three things and then you'd bounce them down onto the fourth track and then you'd overdub some more stuff and then you'd bounce them down onto one of the other tracks and uh, you'd, you'd build up your song that way. And I was always the one, even though it wasn't my gear, someone else had bought it, I'd always shove people aside and and take over. I just liked the... Um, I liked the technical side of it, although I'm not a technical person and I don't really... I've never really studied the, the real technical side of it. Um, but I just like operating gear... And I and I'm I, I guess I'm I've always been a bit of a control freak in the sense that I, I I like to I like to be in charge and I always think probably arrogance or something I always think I can do it better than anyone else <laughs> so I'll so I'll hear in my head that it should go that way and I'll just barge someone off the machine and start recording and and then tell people what to sing and what to play and um, it didn't always go down well with other people, I suppose, and uh, some people, you know, who, who have probably had better ideas than me were shoved out the way. And But that's that's how I learned, just through through doing it and wanting to do it. And I suppose that, that went through 
then then I was then I was in other bands, <clears throat> and um, the four track went, and I or we I can't even remember. I think I probably bought the eight track, so we had a Fostex or a Tascam eight track recorder, and then uh, I had a job for just under a year when I was about 22 I thought I'd see what it was like to have money so I got a job <laughs> selling photocopiers of all things I made loads of money and I hated it and I used the money to buy some more gear and then I set up another small studio and I got a mixing desk and uh, a microphone and then uh, a reverb unit and then a noise gate and then a compressor and just gradually built from there and then then when the opportunity to get more gear came along, I'd always buy it myself or go in with other people. You know, sometimes a band would club together and buy some stuff. Um, it was always always me at the controls, I think, from that moment on. I was always the one who said, that's all right, I'll sort, I'll sort that out. I know how to record this. <clears throat> so I think as you're engineering stuff and as you're playing in the band, obviously you, you end up, it's inevitable that you have an influence on how the thing sounds and also on what performances are chosen. So you can be engineering and someone can be playing a drum part and you can say, oh, yeah, that was pretty good, but why don't you try it with an extra kick before the snare or something like that? And they'll go, okay. And suddenly you're influencing and suddenly you're a producer. (laughs) And I suppose that the first time you're officially a producer is when someone says, will you produce my record and you get paid for it. But that was was years away from that point, really. So was all this happening? Um, you were you were renting a, a a place at that point. Yeah, so it was uh, started off in bedrooms, um, just doing it in in people's bedrooms and attics, and then we had a rehearsal room in uh, the old YMCA in Sheffield, which had a they purpose built a studio in the basement. No one was using it, so it had a kind of control room, very small control room, but it had sound isolation from the live room unfortunately the live room didn't have sound isolation from the weights room which was next door <laughs> so we used to have power lifters dropping huge weights and grunting Amazing. on most of our recordings um we were there for a couple of years then we moved to another place um just an old empty industrial building we were on the seventh floor of this empty uh, industrial building wow not the best for uh, lugging gear about it had a lift, actually. It was oh, all right. <laughs> um, but it was just massively echoey, you know, and the, even though you thought you were in a small room, actually the walls were so thin and you were effectively in a warehouse. It was horrific for sound. <laughs> <clears throat> then we went from there and we bought, uh, no, we bought, we rented another room and we built a dividing wall in there. Uh, that was great. That was We called that the boardroom. That was the room where they first... Uh, it was the company that discovered the process of making stainless steel. Oh wow! In Sheffield, so we were in the boardroom. We called it the boardroom. It had all oak-panelled walls and everything, but it was old, disused uh, place. And we just, um, yeah, built a dividing room in there and put a few tie lines in. And then it was from there that uh, I went into partnership with Andy Cook <clears throat> and found Yellow Arch and built. I mean, I, you know, it depends what you call a proper studio. Yellow Arch isn't really. <laughs> isn't really a proper, proper studio in terms of floating floors. And, you know, we did it all on the cheap. We did it, did the whole thing for about 20 grand initially. Wow. Uh, and that was three three rehearsal rooms and the studio. So that's just the the upstairs section, if I remember. Yeah, that's right, yeah. 
Um, but again, you know, we built a dividing wall and we put some tie lines in and we soundproofed it as best we could. It wasn't good enough. And then we, over the years, we've added a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And every year we try to improve it and make it better. It's still not a proper, proper recording studio in the sense that somewhere like, you know, your Abbey Roads and Air and all those places are. And even even in, uh, around us, people spend a lot more money. Chairworks in Castleford's great studio, you know. They, but they've probably spent I don't know a hundred, two hundred grand on the building to to isolate things and float floors and put tie lines in and do it all really properly. <clears throat> We're still suffering if if a police helicopter flies overhead, um, it spills onto the mics. You know, it's <laughs> that's just the way it is. There's something really lovely about the. The building that it's in and the and the area that it's in you I'm always a big fan of studios being a little bit isolated from um from what's going on and I, I I'm not too familiar with Sheffield but um Yellow Arch is is kind of on an industrialist is, is it would you call it an estate it's it's a one it's a really old industrial estate isn't it with big yeah, warehouses it, it, and... it, yeah there's a lot of um uh, tooling, I think they call it, and uh, industrial steel. Um, not heavy, not the really heavy industry. Um, a cutlery. There's a there's a place down the road that's been transformed into an eating establishment now, called the Cutlery Works. So there's lots of little mesters and lots of um, engineering that was around us, but it's all gradually changed over the years. And now we're in, although we we. Officially, it's Neep's End, but now everyone knows it as Kellum, and it's become um, a really popular kind of drinking tourist, uh, not tourist, but, you know, a, dr a drinking and eating area with yeah. antiques places and things like that, um, which means we're kind of being priced out of the area at the same time. It's just a bit of a shame. But, um, yeah, we, we were just a, an island in the island of culture in the middle of a load of steelworks, basically. When we yeah, moved in, we, and gradually, gradually, other rehearsal rooms have moved in around us. There's a, there's another set of rehearsal rooms, like probably three or four studios and rehearsal rooms down the road. There's an, there's another studio directly downstairs from us. Um, people just went, oh, that's a good place for music, and have come in all around us. And you know, gradually, we've, I think, through us being there, we've transformed the area into a. A kind of cultural center now <laughs> you get that feel at the studio when you go when you go in you mm. you get a sort of innate sense that it's it feels like sheffield and that f you get the feel in the building as well when you're in the building it's re it's quite grand there's really high ceilings and um you know i'd i'd much rather be in an environment like that um than something that's been treated to death and doesn't have a uh, doesn't have the same um sort of i don't know what the like a historical or there's just something about it and you know maybe maybe it's not soundproof properly but that doesn't matter because you you feel good when you're there yeah yeah i mean it's definitely uh, i'm biased but it's my favorite place to work because it just doesn't <laughs> feel like a place it, I mean, no disrespect to all the great studios around, but they, because they have to be sealed from noise, they're generally sealed from the outside world and you go in there and, and you have to have air-conditioned air and you have to have no daylight or if the daylight is seen, it's through three, four windows and it's quite distant. And um, 
you do feel detached, whereas in the yellow arts you feel like you just happen to have wandered into somebody's kind of industrial attic and you you start making music. It's got a kind of openness and, and spontaneity to it, I think, that, that a standard studio hasn't. So it's it swings in roundabouts. You you don't get tired in there as well. I mean, people can work for happily for, for twelve hours in there without feeling like they've like their head's gonna explode because it's it's almost like well, especially with the windows we've got, it's almost like being outside sometimes. I was gonna um, say it's spacious and light and Yeah, lots of lots of space, lots of fresh air, um lots of daylight. Yeah, it's a good place to work, definitely. And it we do suffer from the slight restrictions of uh, noise coming in but that's never really seemed to stop us making good music um, um you've got quite a, a good collection of um of sort of older gear there in you know there's a, a couple of fender roads if i remember right and and uh, that kind of stuff and i remember you played bass on the record that we made there and i remember you was it a um I can't remember what it was now, but was it a violin bass you were using for that, or? Uh, yeah, I probably used my violin bass on. I can't remember actually what I used. Um, I can't claim that to be particularly old. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not. It's not a really classic antique one. But um, I was going to ask what, yeah. who your influences were, bass-wise and sort of musically, because um, it it feels quite um, it feels quite vintage influenced. The 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 way that you, the decor of the studio and the gear that you've got in there. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Because uh, I really, I, I guess I don't really like many modern records, I have to say. And the, the modern records that I do like probably sound quite old. Um, I just like music when, when you can hear the musicians. I think, I think my whole my whole ethos of of recording and producing is that i want to hear people create and play um so the minute you start over tuning and over quantizing and timing and altering things with the computer you start to lose <clears throat> people's character and anyone can take something and put it in tune and put it in time but it's it's the it's the character of the voice and it's the character of a certain guitar sound and and the way that people interact as well. Um, and if you start messing with that too much and computerizing it and controlling it too much, then you lose the uniqueness that comes from the individuals. I was going to say, with that in mind, what are some of your favourite records? Um, can be mute, just, just purely based on music or... Um sound or songs that you what would you reckon what would you say are your most influential records that you've listened to oh god uh <laughs> that's, that's i knew it. i should have expected you to ask me that i mean i love <laughs> things like i i love a lot of old um frank sinatra and matt monroe and i love um a lot of classical music and i love the beatles and uh, the Stones, and uh, but I like a lot of country music. I like Lucinda Williams a lot, um, and I love early Joni Mitchell um, and Ricky Lee Jones. And Fantastic. but then I I absolutely uh, adore some ABBA and some disco and um, and Zeppelin 
and ACDC. Uh, you know, I, I, so it's it's really hard to say what... I just like different things from different eras and um, different styles. And it's it's really hard to say what makes you like something, isn't it? But I certainly don't stay within a genre and when I'm when I'm at home and I'm about to do some cooking or something like that I'll just suddenly get an urge to listen to the Doobie Brothers or Steely Dan suddenly <laughs> or the Eagles and I haven't got any in my record collection but I'll suddenly go well they're good you know let me just listen to that for a bit I love harmonies I love mamas and papas and um it's so hard Joe to say what what makes you like something <laughs> it is but <laughs> I like things that are good. <laughs> <laughs> I think looking at the list, um, I've been scribbling a few down as you've been saying them, and it's uh, something, I would say the word that ties all of those together is that they're all quite authentic artists. Um, they're all, even though ABBA are a, a poppy band, mm. they're an authentic, they're, they're authentic in what they do, and everybody's got a, you know, whether it's a Joni Mitchell just sat with a guitar, or, um, you know, like a, a big Beatles arrangement or something. They're all quite an like honest artists. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And that, but then I, uh, if I was talking to some of my friends who are really into uh, some classic blues or something like that, they would they would hate half the stuff I've just mentioned. <laughs> and then they and then they they roll out their uh, little Walter records and um, you know John D Hooker or whatever. It's not blues isn't an. A, a genre I've particularly gone into, but you know, I can sit with Richard Hawley and he'll play records for five hours and I'll go, well, they're all brilliant. I've never heard them before. And they're all utterly as rootsy and earthy and honest as you can get. <laughs> and, and then you, and then you go back and you say, well, let's put a Doobie, Doobie Brothers record on with Michael McDonald singing. And you go, well, this is crap. <laughs> because it just suddenly seems like it's very lightweight and got no guts and no sincerity and it's very contrived, you know, and thought out. But I don't know, you, you, you forget about the little Walter stuff and you reset your parameters and you go, actually, no, I do like it. And I do like Steely Dan and why shouldn't I? It's, <laughs> it's, it's a very strange process, isn't it? But the thing about music is that it's there for anyone of any mentality to find what they what they like within it. Um, I just have a certain way of of working when I when I make music. Uh, I almost can't force myself to. I couldn't do a pop record. I can't make things sound <clears throat> glossy and glitzy and perfect. It's just not in my nature to do it. But I can do a country record and I can do a blues record and actually I can do a metal record if I like the. If I like the people and the and and what they're trying to say, I think it's quite possible to to switch genres, but the same kind of characteristics will always come through in the end. I don't know if that makes sense, but it does make sense. Um, so let's talk a, a little bit about that. And and I, and you know, I've got so talk about how your approach working with bands. I mean, I know a little bit about the way that you work from recording with you with Dancing Years. Um, yeah. And it was a, I really enjoyed how much, um, how, I'm careful to say this, but how much influence you had on the process without it feeling like you, you would, you just managed to, well, everything like you've said before, you managed to pull the best out of us in doing it. 
um, you know, we all felt um, we all felt very uh, well looked after musically <laughs> with you there. It was like having yeah. a big big comfort blanket, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was really nice. So from from the uh, so when a band gets in contact and says they want to work with you, what what's your um, how do you where do you go from there? Um, I'd always ask why they want to work with me first. Um, what it is they've heard that I've done that they like and what they expect from me. Because um, that's that's a big one and sometimes you can tell straight away that people that people are expecting something that you just can't provide. Um, especially if someone says, you know, well, I, I, I want to make a, a, a smash hit single for Radio 1 and <laughs> that's, you know, I'm not, not the right person for that then. <laughs> Um, and then I just have a quick listen to something. I had a guy contact me recently. He's a singer-songwriter up in Scotland, and he, he sent me five or six songs down. And I literally, I didn't have time. I was really busy. And I literally only had time to listen to, I'd say, three seconds of the start of a song, three seconds of the middle. And I did that for three or four tunes, and I knew straight away that I liked it because I could tell from the quality of his voice uh, from a couple of the lyrics and just the way he'd approached making the demos that it was interesting so i'd always i'd always look to see if there's something if i've got to like it i've got i've got to think that by the end of it i'm going to have something i'm i've enjoyed working on and something that i'm happy to put on my cv and if i think i'm going to get to the end of it and not want to tell anyone i've done it <laughs> and I've only done it for the money. Um, I wouldn't do it. I, I want something where I can... I don't do Instagram and things like that, but if I did, you know, and I've got a website which isn't up to date, but if it was up to date, I'd like to think every time I finish a project, I'd be going, check this out, everyone. Here's another thing I've done because I'm really proud of it. Once you know that you're going to like it, um, you then have a duty to make it as good as you can for yourself. Um at the same time, you have to make sure that you're getting what your client, and I say your client, to me the client, whether they're signed or not, is always the, the artist. You've got to make sure that the artist has what they want at the end of it. Because there's nothing worse than getting two weeks into a recording and then have the artist turn around and say, yeah, it's all right, but I don't really like it. I mean, can we change the, can we change the drums now? Go, oh, God, no. <laughs> so so it's important that the artist owns the the piece of music really. So I think I always look on my role sometimes you don't need to do anything. Sometimes the the work comes fully formed. You've got a band, they're brilliant. All you need to do is record it as best you can and as true as you can knowing how they want it to sound. Um and hopefully they've come to you or they've come to me because they know it's going to sound a certain way and I realize that for them and they're happy with someone like your band dancing years which was a great project and i still love listening to it um i knew that there was that there were great songs in there i thought i can't remember exactly but i think they you know the potential for the for the way the songs were arranged wasn't really fully formed and it was all a bit of a mess and some of it was a bit rambling and you had a chorus where you didn't realise you had a chorus. <laughs> so, so my, you know, my process there is to, 
is to suggest and to make you question yourselves and to suggest changes and see if you like them. Because if you don't like them as a band, then you can feel the, the reluctance coming through in the performance. <laughs> and everybody's got to be so on board that, that, that by the time we come to record it, it's, it's a, the recording process is a pleasure because you're just recording the thing that you've all agreed is brilliant by this point. You're not questioning and, and trying to change things in the, in the recording process. It's, it's coming flooding back now. I, I can remember being in the <laughs> rehearsal room um, at Yellow Arch, so not in the studio yet, in the, the room at the other end of the, yeah. the top floor. And <clears throat> I don't think, I can't remember whether we said that we knew the songs needed work from you or whether, I have a feeling that you suggested that they might, that we, we might get together in the rehearsal room first. Um, so presumably you'd already you'd already thought that they might need from their demos that they might need some work. And yeah. I remember coming away from that first rehearsal um, or uh, production rehearsal, if you like, feeling the, the mood in the band was a bit confused. Um, and now in hindsight, that makes sense from what you've just said. It meant that we went away, um, we went away and thought about uh, what needed to happen um, and often, as is in the case in bands, there was a you know a principal songwriter in our band, um, and they needed to to sit and think quite hard about what their vision for their song was, um, mm. and that makes sense in terms of the you making suggestions rather than telling, because we had to go away and work it out for ourselves, um, yeah. ourselves, and then come back, and then once we'd once we got to that point where we were really happy with what was happening that's when we went and recorded it um and i can i can remember that really vividly now now <laughs> you're saying all that yeah and also you're working with uh with different uh, egos is the wrong word because ego sounds like a bad thing but ego isn't isn't necessarily bad um it's just what what drives people what motivates people so you're working with different egos sometimes people think they've really really written a great song and why who am i to change it and that's that's also the problem sometimes with bands um it may be that the singer of a band really wants to work with you but actually the drummer doesn't i mean the drummer i don't know why i picked on drummers joe particularly <laughs> the um the drummer might uh, and bass player or guitarist they might be sitting there going who is this guy what's he What's he telling us what to play for? Because the in in the in the singer songwriter's head, he's made a contract with the producer because he likes the way things sound. The rest of the band thought they were great and didn't need any help. So sometimes you have to be careful. You have to work. You have to work with the personalities you've got to make sure that everyone gets on board and is happy. Um, there's another band I work with in Scotland again, um, and from the start they've always trusted me completely. And we get in a rehearsal room and they say, right, here's what we've got. And I say, right, I think you should change that, change that, change that. They go, all right, <laughs> tell us what to play again. What was that? Well, play that, okay. And, and you know, 90% of the time I change what, what they've done without them questioning it. And then they might just say, actually, do you know what? We've quite liked it this way before. I go, okay, fine. But um, so some some bands they they're they're quite happy to put in be put entirely in my hands. Other times, bands come or artists come with almost a fully formed thing, and they just want me to to help them finish it off. It's very variable from from artist to artist and from song to song, really. Um, 
<clears throat> but from my own personal point of view, it goes back to this, I guess it's my ego really, that says if I think something's not good, um, I won't let it through. I don't like, I, I really will fight if I think something's not good enough. Um, if I think a performance isn't good enough, if I think a song's too weak, uh, if I think there's a, a, you know, the instrumental's 32 bars long and it should only have been eight, you know, I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll question and question someone and say, well, why is that? Why do you want all that instrumental there? Why, why are you picking this song when you've got another better one? And uh, <clears throat> I won't, I'll very reluctantly put my name to something that I think isn't strong. I was going to say it's an admirable quality in this, uh, you know, in the modern era where, a lot of um, service uh, people in, you know, it, what's, I, I'm trying to think of the right sort of um, umbrella term to call it. The, you know, as a um, as a producer, you're serving uh, an artist, the artist, the artist booked you. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who would just be yes men to get the paycheck. Um, mm. And I think that it's uh, becoming a rarer commodity that you're, you're willing to, you know, you find people like you who are willing to say, no, it needs to be this way. And I fervently believe it needs to be this way. Um, and I think a lot of artists probably in at the end of the process feel um, like they trust you more because because you were willing to talk in, to them in that manner. It's just a question of being honest with people. And, and I, you know, if, if somebody really, really wants the snare drowned in reverb and I really want the snare up front... In the end, it's their record, um, and I'll, it depends how far how far into the recording process we are. If we're at the very, uh, there was one band I worked with um, who came to me and they said they really, funnily enough, they said they wanted a '60s sound, and I said, "Well, do you think do you think that's what I do then?" They said, "Yeah, we love the sound you get." So I recorded with them for two days, and right from the start. I got the kind of drum sound I'd normally get. And they said, no, no, we don't want that drum sound. I, oh, right, well, that's what I normally do. They said, no, no, we want a more 60s sound. So I, I was forced in the end to do some weird, really dry kind of mono thing because that's what their idea of a 60s sound was. I'd never done it before. <laughs> um, and in the end, I think we got through two days and I finished the project off because they'd, we, they'd come to me from a you know a town some way off I can't remember where they were from they traveled over and I thought well I'll finish it off but at the end of it I I gave them a mix of the song and said there you go it's don't put my name on it and um see you around sometime because it was, it was we were obviously never going to work together again yeah um it was really strange that they said they wanted to work with me and then completely wanted me to change everything I did <laughs> well 60s um, is a wide-ranging you know there's a, a huge amount of uh, different sounds coming out of that era yeah you know, from year to year it changed massively yeah there's a huge spectrum of sound isn't there i mean uh, i know we're we're talking about a 60s podcast for you but I, I i really love well i love everything from the 30s from the you know the old django reinhardt recordings and things like that that have a they have a certain quality or lack of quality that gives them a I don't know. It's a it's a comforting sound. That really small. It's so easy to listen to because it can just be in the background, and it's not in your face at all. And then you go through to the fifties and you listen to some of the the Capitol recordings and the you know the Ella 
Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra American songbook stuff, which is just astonishing in its sound quality. And you think, well, how can anyone ever get better than that? <laughs> and then you get into the 60s where experimentation started happening and that's fantastic. And then the 70s all had this kind of gluey warmth to it. And then the 80s, suddenly you start getting this harsh digital computerized thing and and from then on I, I'm not saying no good records got, get made after that but I've kind of lost interest after that <laughs> and and I find albums made um in the 90s and and onwards just generally quite tiring to listen to and I don't want to go through a whole album because they're so they get louder and louder and more in your face and don't have any space and I think uh one thing about what I do is that I generally try and make music that has space that you feel you can walk into as a listener you can walk into the room and you can you can envisage everybody playing um that's that's the kind of thing i like to do i like to keep space and i don't want things to be uh, shoved in your face and i don't want people to be shouted at by the music i want them to be drawn into it i did a bit of research listening Back to, to things that you'd produced and been involved with. And I have a sentence down here in my notebook I've written down. Uh, I've put, that your I would describe your production as um, roomy, but has an epic sound quality to it. I'm referring to the strings there. And then I've put, there's a lot of space. And that is something that does seem to stand out in all of the different records that you've worked on, that there's somehow, mm. there is just a lot of space there. And I, I can't, I can't, I can't put my finger on how it happens, but it it sounds so natural and small, but but epic and spacious all at the same time. <laughs> right, that's good. Well, I like that. That's kind of yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know why either. But um, even when I try and do something different, it doesn't. It, it usually ends up the same. Um, so maybe I have certain patterns that I repeat, and maybe. Um, it's my limitations as a sound engineer. You know, I mean, I, as I'm sure you're aware, and uh, this probably won't come as any kind of insult to you, but sometimes the most able drummers, the ones who've studied everything and can play any style, are not the best session drummers. They might be for some people, but they're not for me. And the, the people who make the best session drummers are the ones who can only play in one or two styles. And you say, well, actually, I want someone who... I, I, want, I want a country drummer who plays with a lot of feel, I'll get someone who can only play country or a bit of rock and roll or something. But he's never going to make the session for... He's never going to be standing in for Jeff Beccaro on a Toto record. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because people who can do that suddenly can't play a simple backbeat. They have to play it with a certain attitude. And I, that's the same... Then the same's true. I've known of some great singers and you see them go on The Voice where they say I'm a... I'm a backing singer and I've been singing for 20 years and I've backed all these people. And then they say, well, go on then, play. Uh, not play, sing something for us. And they almost don't know who they are in terms of the way they sing because they've got too many um, choices. And they could, sing, they could sing like Marvin Gaye, but they could sing like Paul McCartney or they could sing like John Lee Hooker. And they, they have too much choice and they're not sure who they are. And I think that's probably true of of the way I work, I, you know, if you say to me, make me a 60s sounding record that sounds very much like 
uh, small faces or something like that. I don't really know how to do that. And if you say, make me a modern pop record in the style of Take That, <laughs> I haven't got a clue how to do that either. <laughs> so so when, a, when, a, uh, when an 80s influenced band comes to me and wants to make an 80s record, I, I might say, yeah, I do, I do remember the 80s and I do like some of that sound, but it's still within the parameters of what I know and what my taste is. And you're always going to end up with something that sounds like me. Like when you try and do handwriting, you try and disguise <laughs> your handwriting, you always end up with something that's characteristically yours. Um, I think that's probably true of most producers who have a, a sound of their own is they can't really switch to do something else. That's their sound. And they, they'll sound very different if they're doing a, a country record or a jazz record, but they'll still be, like you've picked out, there'll still be qualities that are common to both. I, I think it's um, it's a really a really interesting point, and I I can I can feel that um from my own music journey that you know I went to music college sort of a decade ago, and um you get told that you need to be really good at everything and all all of this, mm. and then slowly but surely I've begun to realise that um that focusing in on one specific area, which for me was was Beatles sounding drumming, I you know I'm a huge Ringo fan, I've always loved his playing. Yeah. Um, and that suited my my philosophy on on drumming, and the more I focused on that, the 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 busier I got. Um, and I think, but it, at the same time, it's a really scary thing to to do. To you know, I've had to unlearn a lot of things, or things have fallen away from my skill set because I haven't nurtured them because I didn't need them. Um, mm. And it's quite a scary thing to do to to embrace. Uh, to, to embrace who you are, and we're sounding really deep here, but it seems to me that from what you were saying about your your journey, sort of in the early '90s, perhaps around about the when Yellow Arch was, was becoming a thing, you were quite confident with who you are from the start, and that's perhaps why you've got a, a sound like you do. Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that's I'm a bit lost on that one. I don't really know if that's true. I think all all I'm saying is that it's 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 a, when you're when you're faced with a career in music, you you can try and be you know, when you're <clears throat> when you're trying to to please lots of people, um you end up doing a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here and <clears throat> something that's that's um stuck out from lots of the things that you've said is you're very, you know, you've made a commitment to to one thing in your mind and stuck to it. And that, um, that seems to be standing you in good stead in terms of getting you a, get, getting a, a great sound and a, a sound that's uniquely yours. Um, whether you're, whether you're maybe aware of it or chosen to do it or not, I'm, maybe suggesting that that's because you're you're so uh because you <laughs> i'm trying to think of a good way to phrase it but because of the way that um you're you're so um focused on on where your parameters are <laughs> in terms of what you're willing to work on or what you know you like and don't like that you do end up with a sound that feels like it just comes out every time yeah. by accident but it's just it might be because you're aware of 
you know, because you're so comfortable with, with who you are and what you know and what you want, musically I'm talking about. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> gone, gone down a bit of a deep rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's also, as I've got older, which I have, um, there's, uh, there's a slight, it's not laziness, but there's a, there's a feeling that music should be, it, the whole process should be enjoyable. And I'm, I'm almost going into life philosophy now, but I don't want to spend two weeks in a studio with someone I don't have fun with. Um, and I want the whole process to be enjoyable. I kind of think that um, if you're enjoying yourself as you go along, then you're going to be making better music. And that whenever I see someone in the studio really, really struggling to come up with an idea or to, to achieve a performance, I usually tell them to stop, you know, and, and go take, a, take an easier route. Um, if someone's trying to play a solo that's beyond them, then simplify the solo, you know, let's not keep going and going because that's not you anyway, let's make it easier. And if a, if a song's not working and we're struggling to come up with the right harmonies or the right sound for it or something well let's leave it put it aside let's not worry about it let's not stress so um the whole process becomes a bit more relaxed and a bit more fun and, and generally moves along a lot quicker that way so i like to think that that every everything we record generally is uh, is enjoyable and good fun and then at the end of it you end up with something that everybody's proud of and that you've enjoyed making at the same time and that's that's probably why i don't know 80% of the people i work with do come back to me and do some more um because i've helped them get what they want and we've had a good time at the same time <laughs> and and i'm cheap as well <laughs> um all right so i'll move away from from sort of philosophy <laughs> for, for a second do you have a favorite project you've worked on oh no i mean uh obviously some of richard's stuff is great um i'm in danger of missing out people that uh not that anyone's going to listen to this <laughs> <laughs> of the people i know um i'm really proud of an album i did uh a girl called eddie so that's the actual Richard Hawley and I produced this artist and the artist's name is A Girl Called Eddie. Um, <laughs> that's a great album. We did that in about 2003, I think. Um, it, and I'm still epic. astonished at uh, how good it sounds when I think how much I must have learned in the subsequent 15 years. And then I listen back to that and go, oh, actually, that's... <laughs> That was pretty good anyway, even with the restricted equipment, you know, ADATs and um, no computers and uh, really limited reverbs and a cheap desk. And a, but it was still still sounds great. So I, that that reminds me that the ideas uh, overrule the gear by a mile. So, yeah, uh, Tom Hickok's uh, was a great album. A Girl Called Eddie. Um I work with a band in Scotland called A New International. They do more theatre-based music. Um, I really like that. I really like your project. Um, a couple of tracks off that. Um, yeah, but mostly I've liked everything I've done. 
<laughs> I'll, um, I'm going to put some links to to some of the albums that that you've just mentioned in um in the notes for this show. So if anybody is listening and wants to talk to to check them out, I'll put them in in the comments bit. Um, and I know you've just said that gear isn't the be all and end all, but I was going to, one of the questions I'd I'd like to ask. Um, I spoke to a, a chap last week who he asked me this question, and I thought this was quite a nice question to ask people. Um, do you have a desert island piece of gear? So it could be a microphone or um, hmm. a p- piece of recording gear or whatever you want it to be. Uh, I yeah, I've probably got a couple of bits, and they would both be compressors, um, which is the Universal Audio Eleven Seventy Six. Um, for drums. Yeah. Um, I haven't tried enough plugins to see if anything else will do it, but nothing else seems to, uh, to crunch the way they do. And I've got an Amec 1998 compressor, which I didn't realize how much I valued until it broke. And I do nearly all, all my vocals through that. And it's just got a, a, a quality somewhere between uh transparency and uh obliterating compression <laughs> um which just <clears throat> i couldn't find anything else that sounded like that when it broke so I've, fortunately it's fixed again uh so i suppose those those two but to be honest i mean i think <clears throat> the skill of any great producer and engineer is that they will the the trick is to always know in your head what sound you want to hear uh, and then to manipulate the gear you've got to get that sound. So, oh, hello. What was that? Was that, that you was, or me? That was me getting an email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the trick is to always know what sound you want to achieve and then whatever gear is at your, avail- is at your fingertips, you use that to get the sound. Um, and I've just been forced because of coronavirus that somebody asked me to do a mix and I wasn't prepared to go in the studio, so I've just, for the first time, I've just done a mix uh, entirely on my laptop without any outboard gear. Um, and it's only my, it's only a MacBook Air. It's not even got plug, decent plugins or anything. But I still just worked and worked and worked until I got what was in my head. And it wasn't far off what I would have done in the studio with great speakers and outboard gear. Um, so yeah. That, uh, Desert Island gear, no, I wouldn't be too worried if I lost all my gear. Um, um, I think I think if you know someone comes with a guitar and a microphone, we can always make something good. <laughs> I, I love that. There's a a quote from pretty sure it's Jeff Emmerich where you know people were asking him why why I think they were talking about the the AKG mics the D19s that they were using for Beatles and they were saying why did you use those specific mics I'm pretty sure it's Jeff Emmerich and he said something like because they were there that's just what we yeah. grabbed them and put yeah, on yeah exactly yeah I mean I've got I, people ask me sometimes because if anyone's not heard Richard Hawley's stuff he's he's got a beautiful voice and uh, I get asked occasionally how do you get Richard's vocal sound and somewhat facetiously I just say I put a microphone in front of him while he's singing <laughs> And then you put because, him through the Amet compressor. Well, because you know, I, I do I do have a chain, but the chain's changed over the years. But his and his voice has changed over the years as well. But to be quite frank, you, the stuff that I make when I use the Telefunken 
whatever it is that he owns now. He's got the, the um, U48, U47 Telefunken style thing and that goes through a thermionic culture early bird, which is three grand, and then that goes through a Calrec compressor and then it goes out through my desk and back through the aim. You know, it's all this chain and you could add it up and it's probably £15,000 worth of gear. And then you hear him recorded on the BBC or at a live show and he's got an SM58 in front of him and and, uh, and a bog-standard compressor or nothing and he still sounds pretty much the same, really. <laughs> so all these thousands of pounds worth of gear and these obsessions over gear, they make fractional differences compared to the thing you're recording. So, you know, it's always... The, the little bit of teaching I've done, I've always said, look, it's all about the source. It's so much about the idea and then the source. And then the the very, very final thing is this tiny little percentage of difference you make with the gear. It's it's not about the gear. Um, gear can it. make things sound nicer, but give any of the good engineers you've been talking to, um, give Ken Scott an SM58 and a tape machine, he'll make something better than someone fresh out of college thrown into Abbey Road because he, he, he knows what he's looking for. I'd suggest that you two have very similar philosophies on, with, on the way that you do things. You know, he said a lot of the, the same things you've said, which is, um, is really, it's, I find it really inspiring. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an, a nice, it's for a lot of young people, especially. I mean, I, I was definitely guilty of this when I first was getting into all of this. You, you think that gear is, is the answer and, you know, and you don't, you don't trust it when you, um, when you hear, um, hear what you've just said that it's what goes in that counts. You think, well, it no, it can't be that. It must be the gear, and then you slowly learn that it is what goes in. Yeah. Um, and it's inspiring to know that, um, although it's harder to acquire <laughs> the skill to put to 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 do you know to to play the instrument well enough to to put it in. It's easy, you know. It's easy to buy a, a piece of expensive gear. Yeah. Um. But it is quite inspiring to know that the gear doesn't matter. I suppose the problem for some people, if if you want to become a producer and you're not necessarily a musician, then what I've just said diminishes the role of, of a producer so much. Because actually all I'm saying is that the the, the best the best thing I'm gonna produce is is the best songwriter and the best singer with the best song. It's not it's not my decision to put an RE20 inside the kick drum and a U47 on the outside, it's that, it's that I'm going to have somewhere along the line, I'm going to have someone who's written a great song with great lyrics and who delivers it brilliantly. And then, it, and then it's my job to enhance it as a producer. But those things are almost outside your sphere of influence as a producer. So it's it might be hard for someone who's setting out who thinks, well, I've got to learn you know everything about compression and everything about EQ and and they watch all the tutorials about how to how to mix things and in the end if you if you're mixing shit you're going to get shit um there's, there's there's no way around it and if you've got something great um to record the only thing you can do is either capture it right or screw it up for them so yeah it's kind of taking away the mystique and and you almost have to choose to stop trying too hard, I think. 
and just 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 um, make sure that everything you record is as good as it can be and fits with the thing that went before, and then you should then you've done your job. I think I um, absolutely love it. I could listen to you talk about this genuinely all day. I I, I could just pick your brains and talk talk to you forever. Well, if you did, I'd probably contradict myself <laughs> fifty times. As well. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. Um, it has been a, a real privilege. Well, thank you. No, no problem. So there we are, Colin Elliott. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, it seems to be becoming a little bit of a catchphrase for me. Um, I enjoy all these conversations. Um, I considered whether or not to put a bit of a disclaimer in at the beginning about um, the heaviness of the conversation around 45 minutes in. Um, but then I decided not to. Um, I just thought I'd bring it up. I hope you enjoy um, the candour of these conversations. Um, and I'm deliberately trying to keep in um, parts of it that, um, as me speaking, maybe make me feel uncomfortable. But I think, uh, as a listener, I, I hope you enjoy them. Um, anyway, you can find more information about Colin and Yellow Arch at yellowarch.com. Um I will also put links to all this stuff in the show notes and uh, I'm going to put some Spotify links to um, some of the albums that Colin mentioned that he was uh, quite proud of working on. Um, Next week, we're going to be speaking to Clay Blair, um, who is from Hollywood. um, And that sounds very glam, doesn't it? It's from Hollywood. Um, He runs the old producer's workshop studio. and I think it's called Boulevard Recordings now. Um, and uh, uh, if you don't know, Producers Workshop is where Pink Floyd have recorded and uh, many other um, amazing bands um, back in the day. And Clay is uh, an absolute Beatles nut. Um, so I have a pretty amazing conversation with him. It's so nice to um, to just get nerdy about the Beatles. Um yeah, so I, I'm 100% sure you, if you listen to this podcast, you will absolutely love that conversation. Um, he's a really, really great guy. Um, so tune into that. Um, as usual, uh, you can contact me um, or get in touch with me. Uh, my website's allyouneedisdrums.com. Uh, email address joe at allyouneedisdrums.com. I'm on Facebook, if you search for that, um, or Instagram at allyouneedisdrums. Um as usual, please do get in touch. I'm a, I'm a real person in a real room. <laughs> just just say hey. Um, I'd like to say a big thank you to uh, my good friend Joe Kane for the intro and outro music that you listen to. Um, he's an amazing musician and uh, another amazing friend of mine, uh, David Henshaw, for providing the beautiful artwork that he did for this podcast and continues to do for each episode. Um, I hope you all have an amazing couple of weeks uh, doing whatever you're doing and I will speak to you soon. Goodbye.